John chapter 19 from verse 16, uh, finishing at verse 30. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide who will get it. This happened so this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple with him, whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Ten uh, years ago, next month, Hannah, Karen and I went to... North Carolina for seminary, and I still miss a lot of what we enjoyed there. I really miss my friends. You go through a lot in different seasons of your life, don't you? And moving your family such a long way away to go through three years of really precious training, you build some really precious friends, and I really miss them. I really miss the food. If you've been to America, you miss the food too. We were in North Carolina, I miss the weather. But one of the things that I miss, too, is regularly bumping into military servicemen and women and veterans. We had just a small number in our church family. We made really good friends, dear friends, with families that lived in Beaufort in South Carolina. If you know anything about that part of the world, you know it's very not far from Paris Island, where the Marines are based. So you'd regularly meet service, men and women and veterans. And where we were in the South, there was a custom in North and South Carolina where you, on discovering that somebody had either served or was serving, would say, thank you for your service. And when you think about what those brave men and women had seen, 
and had witnessed and had given up in order to serve others and their country, thank you seems very, very small. But it was always really genuine. There's something quite remarkable about seeing people meeting strangers in restaurants. I mean, sometimes they'd even just see somebody in a restaurant who was wearing a uniform or they discovered was serving, and they'd meet them, they'd thank them for their service, they'd pay for their bill. Because it's just an instinctive response. I need to do something because of all that you've done. Now, what we have just read is not just the historical record of the execution of a Jew from Nazareth. It is God's plan of salvation for you and me. This is our personal story. This is the way that we have been saved, not from an army that you could put on a map, but from the judgment of God that we deserve for the sin in our life. And as brave as those service nothing compares to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. If you think, thank you for your service, sounds small when you think of what those men and women have served, it's going to feel even less adequate when it comes to seeing what the Lord Jesus has given and sacrificed for us. Now, when it comes to something as painful and as brutal as this, it's sometimes hard to know where to look. And we all know that in personal experience, don't we? In just ordinary life. If somebody in your family breaks an arm or or has a burn or is involved in an accident, you, you sometimes don't know where to look. Where is it right for me to look? To show my love, but not to make this all feel weird. That's even more the case with the horror of the cross. Where are we to look? Are we we supposed to look as hard as it is right into the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he endured on the cross? Or are we supposed to look somewhere else? And what John helps us do in this text is he shows us not just where to look, but why. He, He directs our gaze in five different directions. And as he does, he shows us how faithfully Jesus endured and fulfilled God's plan so that Everyone who looks to him knows that their salvation is one. That's what we're going to see through this text. And my prayer all the way through this week, for myself first, but for you too, is that this passage would break you afresh. I long for you to see as I've seen afresh this week. How great is the love of Jesus for sinners like me. That he would willingly endure all of this suffering and shame and scandal to pay for my sin. And I want you to see not only the greatness of the love of Jesus, I want you to see the sinfulness of sin that required such a sacrifice to be made if any of us are to be known as the children of God. And to be able to draw near to our holy, holy Father. If you are not yet a Christian, all of that might sound like a massive ask. And more than you ever thought you might hear on a Sunday morning when you came into a building like this. My prayer for you this week has been that you would see the utterly, otherwise unimaginable love of God for sinful people like us. There is 
no sacrifice, there is no saviour, there is no religion, there is no nothing as powerful and as important as the Son of God dying on the cross. This is the heart of Christianity. Perhaps this is your first Sunday here. If it is, you have arrived at the most important message you could hear. You're here to see that nothing else can deal with your sin or my sin or our sin. And yet Jesus has done everything. And what we're going to see is that Jesus fulfills God's plan of salvation so that everyone who looks to him can know their salvation is one. Now there are five things that John wants us to look at this morning. The first place he tells us to look is to look at Jesus and marvel at his sacrifice. We need to look right into the suffering that he endured. In verse 16, Pilate hands him over to the soldiers to be executed and they forced Jesus to carry his own cross to Calvary. Now, we don't know for sure whether that was the whole cross pictured like this or or whether it was just that cross beam. We don't know either way. Is part of the brutal punishment of crucifixion that the Romans inflicted on those who would be crucified, that they had to take their own cross. We might say you have to dig your own grave. This is, this is infinitely worse because the people who are being forced to do this have already been flogged. Jesus may well have been flogged twice. So as he bore the weight of that cross upon himself, he was carrying it as a beaten and a broken man, and he would carry it so far. Now, John tells us that he carries it towards, he carries it uh, to the place of the skull. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus physically can't get the whole way himself. He's been so badly beaten that the soldiers need to enlist a man who's just passing by. His name happened to be Simon. And he's given the cross to carry for the rest of the way. But in John's gospel, the focus is on what Jesus was willing to do for us. He was willing to bear every aspect of the pain and the suffering that was endured. If you remember from the other passages, he wouldn't take any of the, the wine that was partly to, to uh, sedate the pain in order to experience all of it. And and here John is focusing on the fact that Jesus himself would take this cross all upon himself as he limped towards. Now, John tells us a place called Golgotha. Please don't let the names confuse you. Um, We don't know exactly where the place of the skull is in modern-day Jerusalem. But for the Jews in Jesus' day, it was known in Aramaic, in their Hebrew language, as Golgotha. When it is translated, when skull is translated into Latin, which was a hugely widely spoken language in Jesus' day, it was translated as Calvary. So Calvary and Golgotha, they're describing one and the same place, which is where Jesus was crucified. And as the soldiers lifted Jesus up, he was placed with a criminal on either side. That was very deliberate. You think about everything we've seen and learned about Pilate during the course of the last few chapters. Pilate hates the Jewish fuss 
and all of the fake allegations that they've made about Jesus. And yes, they may have forced his hand to crucify Jesus, but Pilate is going to see all the way through this chapter that Pilate is going to try and have the last word. And even when it comes to where Jesus is crucified, he wants to make the point that they may have made this big scene about Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jewish people, but he's going to put Jesus right in the middle of criminals to make it really clear, as far as he's concerned, if Jesus is guilty of anything, it's just as a regular criminal. In fact, he's going to be right in the middle because that's the place where you put the person you want to expose the most. To the most shame. To the most scorn. So there's Jesus right in the middle of all of this. And the Romans think that they're playing a game to prove that they're in charge. But God's in charge. We've seen that all the way through. Here's Pilate. He's trying to play his games to mock the Jews, to crucify Jesus, not only with other criminals, but right in the middle so that there'd be this sense of the Romans in charge. But what Pilate is doing is exactly what God has promised hundreds of years before would be true for the promised Messiah. Isaiah promised that the Messiah would pour out his life unto death and be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus wasn't just the victim of Pilate's power play, his struggle with the Jews. He was fulfilling God's plan to save sinners by being numbered with us. He wasn't crucified on his own. He was numbered with the transgressors. We, we need to look at Jesus to see everything that's going on. We need to see the suffering that he endured, but we need to see it the way the gospel writers record it for us. I've read a lot about crucifixion this week, and to be honest, I haven't slept very well as a consequence. It's brutal. But the Gospels don't focus on the physical suffering. And that's really deliberate. John doesn't want to play on your emotions. God doesn't want to win your sympathy for a physically suffering Savior. He wants to bring you to repentance and faith. He wants you to see that though Jesus would willingly endure all of this suffering, it was for the purpose of doing something more than merely showing you his willingness to physically endure hurt. We're going to see as we go through that there is a spiritual suffering that Jesus endured, and that's the greatest thing. But we are to look at Jesus and marvel at his sacrifice. The second place we're to look is above his head and remember that he's the king of all. The Romans had a practice when they, when they sentenced somebody to be crucified. They would force them to carry a, a plaque, a nameplate, that would identify their crime. You'd either hang it around their neck if they couldn't hold it themselves, or in Pilate's case, he had it fastened to the cross above Jesus' head. And the idea was that it's how you show a watching world what this person is guilty of. It's how you act as a deterrent. If you do this crime, this is what happens. And, and here, Pilate knows that he's got one more opportunity to play another final word against the Jews. He has this inscription written, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And we know that Pilate didn't believe that. 
The reason he had it written was he knew that the Jews hated the idea that that's who Jesus was, or in their mind at least, who Jesus claimed to be. And that's exactly what they're protesting. Verse 20, you've got crowds of Jews streaming into Jerusalem for the Passover. So many of them, verse 20, are going to see this sign. And the chief priest, verse 21, wanted Pilate to change it. They wanted Pilate to make it clear that Jesus wasn't the king of the Jews. It's just that he claimed to be. And there's Pilate in this like day-long battle of vengeance and power, just adamantly insisting in his arrogance, it's not going to change. What I have spoken, I have spoken. Now, in the light of everything we've seen over the last few chapters, you might think that's just a political power battle between these two parties that really don't like each other. But there's more going on here. God is using Pilate's spite to tell all people that his son is the king. This notice was written in three languages. Aramaic, Hebrew, is the language of the Jews and the local people. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire and all of officialdom. Greek was the language of the rest of the cultured world as other people were coming in for this great festivity. Pilate is announcing to all people who speak any language that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Wherever you may have come from, whatever language you may have spoken, Paul, that Jesus is not only King, but he is the King of all people, whatever language that you may speak. And Pilate even sounds like an Old Testament prophet, don't you think? How many times have we read in our Bibles, it is written, it was written, Here's Pilate saying, I have written. God is sovereignly ruling over all of this to make sure that wherever you may have come from, you would know that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And when he returns, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father to look at Jesus and we need to look above his head. Thirdly, we are to look at his feet and his willingness to endure shame in our place. For four Roman soldiers, this was just another Friday. Crucifixion was what they did. It was their job and one of the very small perks of the job is that you could take what was the last belonging of the victim as you crucified them. That's how we know there are four of them, because they took from Jesus' possessions. I don't think what's being described is they just yanked everything off and ripped everything into quarters. I think what's being described is they each took the outer garment, the belt, the sandals, and the head covering. Four items that Jesus would have been wearing for each of them, but that left one. They left his undergarments, which isn't the same quite as we would think today. It perhaps would be a bit more like a, a suit. It was close to the skin, but it was more than just our undergarment. It was, well, seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. It's an unusual item of clothing for these Romans to be looking at. And, and rather than rip it 
and tear it into quarters, which wouldn't be good for anybody, they decide, verse 24, that they're not going to tear it. They're going to cast lots to see who's going to keep it. Humanly speaking, we are confronted afresh with the sinfulness of sin. This is the very last layer that the Lord Jesus had to wear. And all they care about is who's going to get it and how they're going to divide it. And we're reminded of the shame that Jesus endured in our place. Not only did he suffer the physical agony and the spiritual agony for receiving the judgment of God, he endured the scandal of the curse of sin. What was it that Adam and Eve discovered the moment that they took of the, free, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That they were naked and they were ashamed. Here was the second Adam experiencing the shame of nakedness. But there is more to see here too. There's not only that physical element. There's more than the soldiers being selfish and, and everything that's going on because even in their selfishness, even though they are completely ignorant of what is going on, they are serving the plan of God too. Hundreds of years before, God inspired King David to write in Psalm 22, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. One of the massive focuses as we've gone through John's gospel is that you would know that in all of the horror and the shame and the scandal and the sinfulness of the cross, God is in control of all of it. And more so than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John wants you to see the sovereign control of all of this, even to the extent of how selfish soldiers are going to work out who gets a precious undergarment from the Lord Jesus Christ. None of this is an accident. None of this happened because Jesus was some helpless victim to Pilate and the soldiers. Every single detail of the act that secured our salvation took place exactly as God had planned hundreds of thousands of years before. Now, John may even be intending us to see something more in this garment. You can imagine that lots of people will pick up on the symbolism, perhaps, and make all sorts of connections. I think perhaps the strongest connection is back to the foot washing in chapter 13. What did we see in chapter 13? We saw Jesus willingly removing his outer garment to do the dirtiest job in the house that would not even be asked of any Jewish servant. He was preparing the disciples to see something of what it would mean for him to willingly not only do that, but give everything in order to wash away their sin. And here, Jesus doesn't just take off his outer garment Everything that he has is removed. This is what that was pointing towards. He gives up everything, humbles himself all the way to the shame and the scandal of the cross in order to win our salvation. That's why we are to look at the foot of the cross, but we're also to look at his family and see his love for his own. Now John very deliberately contrasts the four soldiers with four other people who are near the cross. Not his disciples, with the exception of John, the beloved disciple. All the other disciples have gone. But there are some courageous women who've remained. His mother Mary, 
Mary's sister, who is probably called Salome, or Salome, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And these brave women refuse to abandon Jesus, even in the shame and the horror of the cross. It's hard to imagine their sadness. Just to be losing someone that they have loved so much for those three and a bit years of his public ministry, in Mary's case, for the whole of his life, in his aunt's case, at least to know Jesus for all of his life. But how impossible would it be to try and imagine Mary's grief? No parent wants to outlive their children. No parent wants to see this kind of suffering just at a human level, let alone what Mary could and in time would understand that this dear man was not only her son but supremely her saviour. When Mary presented Jesus as a baby in the temple, Hannah reminded me this week that Simeon prophesied that a sword will pierce your own soul too. The crucifixion was that sword. Mary was suffering inordinately. And it's into all of that family trauma that Jesus shows us his love and compassion for his own. Here is the Son of God enduring the agony of the cross, not only in the physical pain, but in everything that he is enduring as the judgment of God is being poured upon him for the sin of the world. And he looks and cares for his mother in her grief. Joseph, his father, Mary's husband, must have died by this point. At this point in time, Jesus' brothers don't believe that he is who he claims to be. So Jesus, acting as the firstborn son to care for his mother in a day when there wasn't a state system, there wasn't social benefits and all sorts of other things to care for her, he says to the disciple he loves the most, here is your mother. And to his mother, he says, here is your son. There's a preacher called Campbell Morgan who wrote this so helpfully. He, in the midst of the unfathomable things, in the midst of those hours when all the divine compassions were toiling to redeem men and exhibit the everlasting mercy, his heart thought about his mother and he provided for her for the rest of her earthly pilgrimage. At every point in which you look at what Jesus suffered on the cross, you see another glimpse of his love and his compassion for his own. And how much should that encourage our prayers? How often have you thought to yourself, I can't pray about that because it's just too small. I can't bring that to God because there's much bigger stuff that God needs to focus on than what I'm dealing with right now. If you've wrestled with any of those questions, here is the Son of God at the very point of suffering for our salvation, and he's not too busy to care for his mother in her grief. He sees her suffering, 
in the midst of everything he's enduring, and he's the one who provides for her. And the heart of our Savior on the cross is the same heart that he has for us today because our God is the God who never changes, which means the window you see into the heart of our Savior on the cross is the window into the heart of our Savior now. It's why Peter would write to Christians, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you see how much... So can I ask you how much you are not bringing to God in prayer? And encourage you to see that you can bring everything. If Jesus in the moment of suffering upon the cross was able to lovingly care for his own, he can do the same for you. You can bring everything to him in prayer. We are to look at Jesus. We are to look above his head. We're to look at his feet and his family. Finally, John tells us we are to look at his victory cry for our salvation is one. Now, these last few verses, 28 to 30, they're describing the very final moments of Jesus's death. And if we're to understand this, we need to understand what John doesn't record. Each of the gospel writers, they're trying to help us see specific things so that as we read each of the gospels, we would see the full picture of what's going on. John's focus has been to show us so much of what we've seen to this point. But when he writes that Jesus takes um, this wine vinegar, or is given this wine vinegar, that comes at the end of much else that we will read if you read Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospels. If you read those stories, you will know that that cry for that drink comes after Jesus' cry of Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of that's happened before we get to this point. Why would the Father forsake the Son? John's shown us that Jesus isn't guilty. The Jews couldn't find anything that he was guilty of. The Romans couldn't find anything that he was guilty of. The, the badge to say what Jesus was guilty of that Pilate had fixed simply stated the truth that he's the king of the Jews. So why does the father forsake the son? You have to understand that before you understand the last few verses in John's gospel. Why does the father forsake the son? He does it because at this point, he has taken my sin and the sin of all people in all of history who will believe upon him, upon himself. And the just judgment of God for our sin has been paid for by the Son of God upon the cross. That's why for three hours in the middle of the day in the middle of the Middle East, everything went dark because the Father was judging our sin upon His Son. That's how awful the sinfulness of sin is. But verse 28, later, everything had been finished. And Jesus is preparing to tell everyone that that is the case. We're going to know it's the case in three days' time because he's going to be raised from the dead. But he's going to tell people right here and right now that salvation is finished and won if you trust in the man upon the cross. So 
There's Jesus. He's been hanging upon the cross in the middle of the Middle East for three hours. He's endured all of the agony of the trial and the beatings and now the crucifixion. His mouth is parched. He can't speak clearly to all those who would hear him unless he's given a drink. And so here are the only three words that Jesus says about his own suffering during the course of the trial and the crucifixion. I am thirsty. That wasn't just real human suffering. Even that detail fulfilled God's plan. We don't know exactly which verse the Lord Jesus had in mind as he cried out to fulfill God's plan. It might have been Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It might have been Psalm 69. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Either way, Jesus knows that right up to the very final second of his life, all of this suffering is under the sovereign control of God and he is faithfully enduring it to the end. And having drunk that drink, Jesus said, Tetelestai. I don't know of a more beautiful word in the Greek language. Matthew and Mark tell us that at the very end, Jesus cried out in a loud voice that I will not use to scare any children. It is finished. What's finished? Everything for your salvation. And mine. All of the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, they've been fulfilled. They've been accomplished in Jesus. All of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Jesus. All of the requirements for the Old Covenant that we could never keep, they had to be fulfilled. Please don't think that the reason that we're now Christians is God's just given up on the commandments and the covenants. It's not that. It's that Jesus has fulfilled all of the covenants. Your salvation has been won by works, but not yours, his. And all of that has now been fulfilled so that Jesus has accomplished the old covenant and brought in the new covenant. And not only is there the active obedience of Jesus, he has positively fulfilled all of that covenant. There is the passive obedience he endured all of this suffering we've been thinking about today. He took upon himself all of the judgment of God against our sin so that there is nothing left. The judgment of God has been finished. Can I ask you this morning, do you know that your salvation is finished? Not that you have some hope that Jesus did something, but now you're wondering what's left for you. Do you know that it's done? Jesus has done all of it so that you can have the hope that the only person who could ever be the perfect sacrifice has died in your place. The only person who could be the high priest to bring that offering to the throne of God has done so. The only one who is the king of kings before whom every knee will bow has been shown to be the king of all people. 
do you know your salvation is finished? That's why Jesus came. That there would not be in your life any fear that you have undone something, that you could do something, that you could omit something that would result in you not being forgiven. Jesus has said, it is finished. Now again, if you're new here and you're thinking, I, I didn't know that you could be that forgiven. I didn't know that you could come to church and know that for all the mess in our life that we're aware of, and when we think about all of the mess before God, we could know that we're forgiven. How is that possible? How, how can I experience that for myself? Well, if you are new, you wouldn't have been with us when we were in John chapter 3. Come and speak to me afterwards. I want to give you a Bible so that you can read John 3 when you get home, where Jesus said towards the very beginning of his ministry that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so he was. Why? That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that Whoever believes, not does something, not earns something, not proves that you really, really are repentant, repentant. whoever believes in him shall not perish because the judgment is done and finished, but shall have everlasting life. You may know that this morning because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I pray that you would that you would turn from your sin and believe in him and be able to sing with us as we close this lovely song that picks up on just how finished it all is finished all the debt is paid justice divine is satisfied the grand and full atonement the purchase of our salvation is made god for a guilty world has died. There is much, much, much to be sad about as we look at the cross. But don't stop there and fail to see the joy of a salvation that is won and finished 